What is the future of basic science? In an academic business model dependent on successful grant applications through government institutions like the NIH, we are positioned to take our cues from the explicit and implicit priorities of administrators rather than from our own creative scientific intuitions. Of course, this arrangement has some advantages. It should not be the taxpayer's obligation to provide funding for enterprises, the results of which will not enrich their lives even remotely. Perhaps the mating habits of a rare species of moth do not warrant a half a million hard-earned dollars to elucidate. The money which the feds extract from the labor of the citizens should be put to good use, not cast into the ivory tower for the amusement of academic curiosity. But basic science has unpredictable advantages for the economy and well-being of humanity. Suppose a thorough understanding of insect reproductive behavior becomes unexpectedly critical for human civilization. How about our dependence on honeybees for the pollination of our food crops? Are these rare moths an important part of the food web? Do they use a type of sexual pheromone that might be useful in medicine? We don't know what might come along to threaten our survival or provide us with an opportunity. In 1881, Charles Darwin published a book called The Formation of Vegetable Mold Through the Actions of Worms, with observations on their habits. Do you think we should have been telling Charles Darwin what to study? Suppose his work on the habits of earthworms is of great value. Maybe it turns out to be, and maybe not. I honestly can't tell you because I'm not an enthusiast of earthworm biology, but I am an enthusiast on the fundamental principles of consciousness. Whatever we apply the scientific method to, it is in some measure productive to the long-term flourishing of humanity. It might be direct or indirect or very indirect indeed, but scientific discovery is important, and the instincts of the scientist must be free to pursue what calls. In my neuroscientific career, I have applied a large variety of techniques to the investigation of neuron myelination, the formation of synapses, epilepsy, diabetic neuropathy, voltage-gated ion channels, fear learning, and rodents. Who knows how some future endeavor will benefit from these previous exposures? The guy who discovered x-rays wasn't pursuing a medical innovation. Marie Curie's work with radiation wasn't a search for an eventual chemotherapy to fight cancer. Charles Darwin wasn't doodling pictures of finches with the intention of challenging the biblical account of creation. We limit the pursuits of our capable scientists at our peril. I see that as we train more and more scientists, we narrow the domains of respectable inquiry. A university department only has so much space, so the hot fields in translational research are the dean's best bet for keeping the grant money rolling in. But are they our best bet? I'm a week into a significant overhaul of my latest paper on the temporally integrated causality landscape. In response to reviewers, I've taken the time to reevaluate my commitment to the idea that consciousness is an emergent property. I've discovered that there is some unexplored nuance here. In the past, I've had the occasion to claim that the TICL is a theory of emergence, not panpsychism. I have provided examples of emergent properties which come about when we arrange components into a common structure or system. For example, a water molecule has properties that do not inhere in either two atoms of hydrogen or in one atom of oxygen. This is not a groundbreaking observation. We're all familiar with this kind of emergence. Another example is the human hand. The human hand can produce leverage and grip and carry out all kinds of nifty mechanical functions that are not the simple addition of each part's capabilities. A pile of bones and ligaments and tissues can't do what the assembled structure can do. Again, I am not breaking any ground with this observation. But I think I've been too hasty in concluding that consciousness is an emergent property in rejection of alternative possibilities. 
These examples of emergence, while obvious and rhetorically useful, do not represent strong emergence. They are, after all, examples of weak emergence, or what Daniel Dennett has called innocent emergence. I believe on occasion that I have conflated these concepts. I did so inadvertently, but with too much confidence. When we get down to the fundamentals of physics, where the real rubber meets the real road, the properties of water can be reduced to the properties of hydrogen and oxygen atoms together with the way they are arranged in space. The properties are reducible. They can be explained just like everything else. Moreover, the capacities of the human hand can be reduced to the parts of which it is composed together with their structural arrangement. Thus, we needn't be confused or astounded in our analysis of how water molecules in human hands come to have the properties once we have a solid understanding of their constituent parts and their layout. For this reason, I can endeavor to revisit my claim that the TICL is a theory of emergence. In his book, The Conscious Mind, David Chalmers wrote, quote, Sometimes it is argued that consciousness might be an emergent property, in a sense that it is still compatible with materialism. In recent work on complex systems and artificial life, it is often held that emergent properties are unpredictable from low-level properties, but that they are physical all the same. Examples are the emergence of self-organization in biological systems, or the emergence of flocking patterns from simple rules and simulated birds. But emergent properties of this sort are not analogous to consciousness. What is interesting about these cases is that the relevant properties are not obvious consequences of low-level laws, but they are still logically supervenient on low-level facts. If all the physical facts about such a system over time are given, then the fact that self-organization is occurring will be straightforwardly derivable. This is just what we would expect, as properties such as self-organization and flocking are straightforwardly functional and structural. If consciousness is an emergent property, it is emergent in a much stronger sense. There is a stronger notion of emergence used by the British emergentists according to which emergent properties are not even predictable from the entire ensemble of low-level physical facts. It is reasonable to say, as the British emergentists did, that conscious experience is emergent in this sense. But this sort of emergence is best counted as a variety of property dualism. Unlike the more innocent examples of emergence given above, the strong variety requires new fundamental laws in order that the emergent properties emerge." Unquote. The strong emergence which Chalmers describes is the kind that I have assumed to be necessary for consciousness. It is this assumption that I'm questioning today. So what is the alternative? Classically, the opposing view regarding consciousness is that of panpsychism. Whatever consciousness is, it must either be an emergent property of a physical thing or a fundamental property of a physical thing. Otherwise, we have to consider it supernatural, and I'm not having that for a second. So why can't consciousness be a fundamental property, like mass or charge? The problem comes down to the de definition of consciousness, and I think I can help to clarify it. Let's begin with a look at what we mean by consciousness. In the broadest sense, consciousness is the subjective experience of content. Thomas Nagel said it was the fact of it being like something to be. That is a rewording of the same claim. To be like something. To be like what? To experience content. I tried to establish a framework for brain-based consciousness that accounts for this. The Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, or TICL, does this by positing that consciousness requires two aspects, a point of view and content, which must both be part of a common physical thing. The TICL says that the thalamocortical brain functions produce an integrated system of causal relations which collectively compose a system. The system is one physical thing, but it doesn't exist at any single point in time. Causality takes time to move through the thalamocortical network, so time is a critical factor. 
Let's say that the system is composed of a million neuronal elements, which are all causally integrated over the period of, say, one second. These numbers are arbitrary and would require experimentation in order to pin down, but let's just accept them for a moment. A million thalamocortical neurons are causally integrated over about one second. Fine. According to the TICL, this system has a point of view upon what happens within it. It is like something to be this system. What is it like? Well, that depends upon what is happening within it that it can experience. It can't experience itself, just as I, the mind of Jesse, cannot see myself or hear myself or otherwise experience myself at all. I, the mind of Jesse, experience thoughts and sensations and moods and so on. These are the operations of particular cortical networks. According to the TICL, these networks are groups of neurons within the system. They're a subset of the constituent elements of the system, and they are distinguishable from the whole system because they are exhibiting even more integrated causality over a shorter time frame. Put simply, the subset of neuronal elements has become a subsystem. This subsystem falls within the spatial and temporal boundaries of the system. The system feels the subsystem in a specific and meaningful way, just as I, the mind of Jesse, can experience visual network activities and auditory network activities in the form of sights and sounds. I have described this as emergence of conscious content within consciousness. Since lately I've been exploring the idea that this ultimately comes down to interacting electromagnetic fields, let me consider how to understand this in those terms. A larger field, the system field, experiences dynamically nested subsystemic fields. Why should it experience them? Well, this is where something like panpsychism has to be considered. But not, I think, in the way that panpsychists tend to do so. No single EM field is experiencing anything on its own. It is not simply like something to be an electromagnetic field. What is panpsychist is the like part, but it isn't consciousness unless it is like something. The universe is populated with atoms and molecules and other materials which produce electromagnetic fields. The EM field of an atom of hydrogen, free-floating in space, has no content to experience. It has no differentiated interior dynamics to provide it with a sense of time passing or sensation or motion. It is likeness without something. That is why I say that consciousness is not fundamental but emergent. However, it could be emergent in the innocent or weak sense of which combinations of things have novel properties that are more than the simple sum of their constituent parts. They are the sum of the parts given a particular arrangement. This is emergence of the human hand variety. The arrangement of parts is critical, not just the identity of the parts. But the human hand is perfectly explainable in reductionist scientific terms, so why not consciousness? The brilliance of the waking human thalamocortical substrate must be that it is a condensed and complex arrangement of EM fields which places the likeness in the same space-time position as a lot of somethings. It forms a dynamic landscape of somethings which it is like to be from a wider point of view. Likeness plus something equals consciousness. The panpsychists assume that likeness is sufficient on its own. They say that an atom or an EM field is conscious. Consciousness is the fact of it being like something. What is it like to be an atom or an EM field? It isn't like anything. Then it isn't conscious by definition. Perhaps an EM field is something which has the capacity to become conscious. It is necessary but not sufficient. Consider this, a crowd. A crowd of people has a tendency to exhibit properties which the individuals do not exhibit on their own. It is not a mistake to call these properties emergent. For example, a crowd can become a violent or larcenous mob, even when composed of individuals who would not be capable of violence or larceny in isolation. This makes sense. The situation of the individuals within the crowd under a set of conditions changes the usual incentive structures. 
Let's suppose that an individual, say a college student, is attending a rally for an important cause that they support. Emotions are high and there's a state of excitement and possibility in the air. Some members of the rally begin throwing rocks through the windows of a downtown department store. The crowd on the street presses forward. The individual has a sense of righteousness of the cause combined with a novel atmosphere of anarchy. Our individual is swept up in the spirit of the mob as they rush into the department store along with a bunch of other people and begin stealing merchandise. It isn't greed exactly that makes this happen. Maybe it's dopamine. Like a drunk guy jumping off a roof onto a trampoline, our individual has come under the influence of something. An interaction has taken place with consequences that might be totally out of character. We see emergent behavior. It is weak emergence in the philosophical sense because the behavior can be explanatorily reduced to its parts and their arrangement, the context. By analogy, EM fields might be able to exhibit consciousness given the right context. In the last episode, I relayed to you that I asked Colin Hales if Maxwell's work means there is a universal EM field, if all of space-time is an EM field. He told me that it is better thought of as a polarizable ground. In this sense, the system referred to in the TICL framework serves as the ground for consciousness, the ground field against which contents manifest as differentiated disturbances. Imagine a piece of black and white art, a painting in black upon a white canvas. The painting depicts a man on horseback. We have a figure and ground. In combination, there is an image of a man on horseback. What happens if we allow the paint to dry, then we add black paint to the rest of the canvas? We have not erased the man on horseback. We've only added more paint, so what happened to the figure? It is still there, but we cannot see it. We still have figure, but we no longer have ground. Now suppose we take a blank white canvas and place no paint upon its surface. We have no painting, just ground without figure. In either case, there is no man on horseback. But it's just an illusion, you say. The depiction of the man on horseback is nothing but black paint, not a man on horseback. Sure, but the same is true for conscious fields of view. If you look out your back window and see a man on horseback sallying across a field of clovers, what you see is just as illusory. The man and horse which you see is not the man and the horse out there in the world. How do you see it? Figure in ground. The ground of consciousness and the figure of content. In his book Galileo's Error, Philip Goff wrote, quote, Of all the theories of consciousness, emergentist panpsychism has the fewest problems of a theoretical nature. Indeed, arguably this view faces only easy problems, by which I mean problems which we can in principle make progress on empirically. For the emergent panpsychist, it is fundamental principles of nature that take us from micro-level consciousness to the consciousness of emergent complex systems. By definition, fundamental principles of nature cannot be explained. If they could be explained, they wouldn't be fundamental. They can only be described. And hence, the emergentist panpsychist can cut straight to the empirical task of trying to formulate and test various candidates for being the fundamental principles that link lower and higher levels of consciousness." Unquote. Emergent panpsychism. Well, that throws a spanner into the works. But isn't that what I've sort of been suggesting in this episode? A kind of reconciliation between emergence and panpsychism? It can be difficult to use normal words to distinguish some of these concepts, but I'm trying. Basically, I've been saying that panpsychism is fine as long as we are suggesting that electromagnetic fields are understood to be conscious without content and therefore not conscious. In principle, this fundamental force localized over some area of space-time has half of what it takes to be conscious. Worded clumsily, the EM field has likeness without somethingness. 
But following upon the logic of the TICL, what happens when we put one EM field within another EM field wherein the constituent matter producing the nested field is part of the constituent matter which makes up the overarching EM field? Doesn't that satisfy the correlates of consciousness for TICL? Doesn't that give the somethingness something to experience its likeness? Okay, maybe it does. But in that case, what is it like? What it is like is not that much. In this account, there isn't exactly a landscape. But who says there has to be a landscape? I have described the neural correlates of human consciousness as a landscape. If that is what we are talking about, then the features of human consciousness are composed upon an evolved physical substrate that determines the arrangement of phenomenal consciousness in a manner which is expressed in terms of useful qualia. The qualia are like black paint upon a white canvas. They are a depiction. The temporal and spatial geometry of the qualia have been imposed by biological processes of development and genetics. A visual map has been laid out in space and time in arrayed cortical columns. The structure has grown like a crystal formation. The result is a thalamocortical brain which structures electromagnetic fields in order to produce a landscape of experiences nested within a unified mind. Why can't I, the mind of Jesse, find myself in the world? I cannot see myself, I can only see visual contents. I cannot hear myself, I can only hear auditory contents. I cannot feel myself, I can only feel content, emotional or sensational. But I can infer myself. I can infer that I exist by reason. I must exist. That is not in doubt, but why am I invisible? I cannot find myself any better than you can find me. I know that I, the mind of Jesse, exist and have experiences. You do not know that. You just assume it. I do not assume it, but infer its truth from first principles. I cannot find myself because I am the blank canvas upon which contents are drawn. I am ground and my experiences are figures. The figures do not exist outside of me. Together, I and my contents are a work of art, a painting, a landscape.